Welcome to the Mass Appeal Podcast, where we break down how to monetize and market apps that appeal to the masses. The Mass Appeal Podcast brings you top players in the mobile app economy to help you stay on top of winning app marketing and monetization trends. I'm your host, Tommy. Let's get started. Hey everyone, you are tuned in to yet another episode of the Mass Appeal podcast brought to you by Adjo. As always, today I am your host, Tommy, and as always, I am joined by a super cool, super interesting guest who I think is essentially today leading the charge in a very interesting genre of applications and has an extensive background in growth marketing, founding businesses, and I'm really excited to talk about his current venture, which has scaled to a pretty impressive degree to date. Without further ado, today's guest is Sami Khan, who is the CEO and co-founder of Atlas Reality. Sami, what's going on? Tommy, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, my man. Austin, Texas? Austin, Texas. Are you a COVID Austin transplant or has it been home for a long time? I like to brag that I came to Austin before it was cool. My co-founder, Bo, and my co-founder, Morgan, actually have been here in Austin even five years prior to my arrival. Actually, Morgan probably longer than that. And I made the move from Los Angeles, California, but really it was a homecoming because I grew up in, born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. So felt like coming back to the South, although I will admit Austin is nothing like New Orleans, weather-wise, culture-wise, or otherwise, but it's still a cool city. You had mentioned you moved there before it got cool. Oh, sorry, like 2018 type of thing. So I did not have very long <laughs> before COVID hit. But no, look, I'm not one of those people that's upset about. I think it's natural for cities that are attractive to attract. That's just how the world works. I really like that. Yeah. So I think naturally Austin, look, it's Austin's got everything. It's got great food. It's got great culture. It's still reasonably accessible. I know people complain about the traffic, but to them, I say spend a day in Los Angeles and then come back here. But yeah, it's I love it here. That's awesome. Boston has similar traffic issues to LA, but I think LA is on, everyone drives in LA is what I've always heard. Yeah. Sunday mornings in LA are the best time to get out and it'll shock you that the normal drive that takes an hour and a half, you can do it in 19 minutes. And that's really the frustrating part about LA is it's got so many highways and it's so accessible. It's just, there's just too many people on the road between you and where you need to go. Too many cars, too many people. Just a big problem. In any case, this podcast is not about cities and traffic. Brought to you by traffic. Yeah. If you want to hear the latest traffic scoop, come join us today. Cool. Sami, I know you've been in, I don't want to say the startup space because that's not necessarily accurate, but I think you've been at companies that scale to scale up unicorn enterprise statuses. And in many cases, you were there in, in some of the initial phases. But instead of my telling our listeners about this, would you mind taking us through your background for two seconds and what got you to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I got lucky. I'll start with that because it's going to sound like fantasy land, but I've been a growth marketer. I went to school for marketing, although I have to say most of the marketing I learned was not from the curriculum at school. I was just about to ask you, did you actually learn anything that you used? I learned case studies and business case studies and accounting and basic shit. My claim to fame was I was doing marketing solo and also with one of my friends, Victor, and then eventually I met the co-founders of Acorns in 2013 through an investor. 
And at the time, the founders of Acorns were like, hey, we've got this app we've been working on for a year and a half. We have no clue how to market it. Can you come talk to our team? And what turned into three hours turned into three months, turned into three years. And I was only supposed to be there for three hours and give my two cents and help scale them and build up their wait list to 100,000 people in conjunction with one of my friends, Colton, who was there. And then I helped scale the app when it launched. And to my amazement, I was 24. And so imagine being 24 and watching the app that you're helping do marketing for that no one's ever heard of become the number one fintech app in America, higher than JP Morgan Chase, higher than PayPal. And back then, JP Morgan held the number one fintech app title, I believe, for the last two years straight. No one had challenged them. And then we just came out of nowhere and we became the top fastest growing fintech app on the app store. And so, yeah, just... And Acorns, that was in some ways, and maybe I'm wrong, you would have a better sense of this, but that was in a lot of ways, somewhat of the catalyst for a lot of what happened in the fintech space in terms of more consumer-facing fintech apps that were accessible to a wider range of people. I think you're touching on something, I think that's something I'm very proud of, which is we've always led the charge on marketing new types of products. Acorns was a year and a half ahead of Robinhood, just to give you context there. I think the only app that I would give credit for that were popular before Acorns that I do think influences quite a bit, I think it's called Mint. Was it Mint? It's the budgeting app. Yeah. Where you connected your bank account and they auto-categorize your spending for you. It had nothing to do with investing, but I would still say it's like a budgeting app. That did really well. That's an Intuit product, though, I think. Well, it got acquired by Intuit, but back then they were standalone. We're talking 2013, 2014. And even prior to that, Bank of America had this thing called the Keep the Change Program, which was just rounding up your spare change into a savings account that pays you like maybe 100 basis points, <laughs> something not that great. And so the founders of Acorns, their concept was pretty simple, which was, hey, what if we took this random spare change concept, but instead of it being in a savings account that effectively gives you nothing, we put it in a diversified portfolio of ETFs that historically have done 10, 11% a year. And so that idea and Acorns marketing it, we became the first non-gaming, non-dating app to market at scale on Instagram. Think about that for a second. That's pretty wild. Yeah, we became the non for the first non-gaming, non-dating app to scale on Twitter for installs. And fast forward, our work was featured in the first ever Snaps earnings call. If you take that, what I've been proud of specifically with Acorns is we were figuring stuff out that others, we helped pave the way for how future fintech apps would market. And as a matter of fact, when I joined Acorns, our entire pro forma was based on Google PPC. <laughs> That was the assumption. And we looked at these numbers and we said, there's no way we're going to hit scale on Google pay-per-click. And that's when we're like, hey, I think we got to try this Facebook install thing, which I know it sounds so obvious now, but trust me, in 2013? Oh, no. I remember. I worked for one of the first mobile DSPs called JumpTap. And we had a meeting where my boss was like, have you guys been hearing much about Facebook install campaigns lately? And we were all like, yeah, we just started hearing about it. And it was a year later that I was like, okay, that's where everyone starts their initiatives now is Facebook. That's pretty wild. And then to fast forward, while I was at Acorns, when things went on autopilot, I wanted to challenge myself again. And just up the street from where I lived in downtown LA in Pasadena was a company called Honey, which is now obviously very well known. 
they got acquired in 2021 for like $4 billion by PayPal. By PayPal, yeah. But believe it or not, then there was a company of five people. And while they had a great product, they were not growing predictably. They did not have any paid user acquisition plan. And I met with the founders, George and Ryan, and they're one of the sharpest people that I've met in my career to that point. And to their credit, they took what I had to say to heart. I think a lot of founders come with their own opinions and let that be what drives them. And I don't know if maybe because it was good timing and they were only growing so fast for three years that they just were ready for something new or... Maybe my success at Acorns gave me a little bit of credibility for them to say, hey, we should trust this guy. But that's the other thing is Honey was a desktop-only browser extension. Like, think about it. This is before Rakuten's, Ebates. This was before all these different browser extensions that you hear of today. I think the only popular browser extension prior to Honey was Adblock or whatever. I basically told George and Ryan, I was like, hey, I'm pretty sure we could scale this on Facebook at the time. Again, this is like 2014, 2015. It's like Facebook was still desktop heavy. Now, I would say in 2023, 80 to 90% of Facebook inventory is likely on mobile. But back then, it was desktop heavy. So you were able to target by browser. You're able to do all these amazing things. And that was yet again an opportunity for me to teach myself something new that I didn't at Acorns because Acorns was a mobile app only, didn't have a desktop app at the time. Honey was the exact opposite desktop app only, no mobile. <laughs> But yeah, we were able to grow that thing. We were able to understand how to target, how to set up the pixels and just scale. And before we knew it, in eight months, we went from 300,000 users that Honey had acquired from over three years. And within eight months, that 300,000 turned into 1.5 million. That's a lot. That's exactly 5X. (laughs) That was some quick math. That's 5X. But again, they had a great product. They had a great team. They were ready for the growth. And I think that's something really important is like just being able to join at that inflection point. I've been really lucky. I don't know that I was the only one that could have helped them, but I was the one that helped them. (laughs) But I do think there was a handful of people that knew and understood Facebook as deeply as I did in 2015, because I had already spent tens of millions doing it through Acorns. So I do think that I was probably... Maybe one of the few people in LA. I'm sure there are people in San Francisco, but... Totally makes sense. It's super interesting. I mean, those are two of the biggest success stories in each of their respective verticals. What I'm curious about in this is in both cases of Acorns and Honey, you joined very early on. In the case of Honey, I think you said you joined when it was five people. I don't... There was like five people. I was an advisor. I never joined full-time because I told the founders of Acorns that I wouldn't quit. But yeah, I joined Acorns when they were... 10 people, mostly engineers and securities folks. At Honey, it was literally like five. I would have been number six had I joined. So 10 businesses at the time of the start, right? That, again, exponential growth in both cases. But the question I'm getting at is, you're a founder or a co-founder and CEO today. How much of the experience of working in, because in both cases, you were predominantly focused on growth, though I'm sure you looked over or at least looked into other aspects of the business. But how much of that experience of being in really early stage startups gave you the confidence to make the jump that you did in terms of founding and starting Atlas Reality. Was there fear or did you feel like you had a pretty good grasp on how to navigate the shift given your best experience? Such a great question. There's always fear. And I think even when you talk to my friends at Honey who are now billionaires, they'll tell you the fear never went away even when you're making a million dollars a day. 
But I think that's part of being a founder is you realize, and maybe, I don't know if it's fair or not, but I think you put a lot of pressure on your shoulders because, by the way, if you're a founder, you're doing it because you want, rarely have I met successful founders who are there to get rich. Don't get me wrong. I've met some people, but they're usually there to just make a quick flip. But the founders that have really built billion dollar businesses, they're not doing it to get rich, as ironic as that sounds. Because trust me, there are faster ways to make, keep in mind, if you make a billion dollar business, you're selling pieces of your business along the way to raise money. So even if you sell something for a billion, that doesn't guarantee that you're even going to make 20, 30, $50 million. So there are faster ways to make $50 million, which is you come up with an idea, scale it just a little bit, and then go sell it to a big company for $20 million and you own 50% of it. When you think about the quality of founder of Jeff Cruttenden at Acorns and George and Ryan at Honey, my first meeting with George, he was talking about how Honey could scale to the point where it would threaten Amazon. Like that was his vision. <laughs> and so I think I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from how the business grew. I think the biggest thing that I learned was self-confidence in the fact that I observed that, and it's going to sound a little narcissistic, but I observed that the biggest value prop was growth. Nobody would have given Acorns or Honey any money if the user base was not growing. And with the proof of, I know how to blow this up more. And I'm not saying I as in me, but the team needs to communicate to investors. Here's our path to world domination. Here's how we can scale. And I realized in both companies that what I was doing was, frankly, the linchpin to raising funds <laughs> and to scaling the business. And when I say I, I mean the growth. And if the growth did not exist, the company would not exist, frankly. And so that was the, like the confidence it gave me to go, okay, I've done this for other people and I've done this for other companies that literally went from sub 20 million in valuation to multi-billion in valuation. And I was like, okay, I think I can do that part. Obviously, the founders have shielded me from other things that they dealt with that I now deal with. People wanting raises, people wanting this, like all the other things that fundraising, dealing with investors, communicating to investors, like I never had to do any of that shit as a growth marketer. And now it's interesting to feel the other side of it, which is I kind of respect how little pressure the founders put on me to grow faster, even though I know their investors were probably talking to them every week about how do you grow faster? How do you grow faster? So being able to balance that and respecting your team and being like, of course, everybody wants you to grow faster, have more features, do more things. And I think the hardest part as a founder that I realize is, unfortunately, you can't have it all. <laughs> and you got to eat that frustration and form it into a way that's like digestible and motivate your team in a way that's not the feedback you're getting because you're getting burn rate, runway, investor feedback and all this nebulous things. And people just want to come in and do their jobs. Like when I was a growth marketer, it was like, how many installs do you need this month? So again, it was a simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> way more complicated. I could totally see that, obviously. And at baseline, though, because I mean, you said something interesting, obviously, and you said you framed it as being somewhat narcissistic. I don't know that I saw it that way at all. But you observed that one of the biggest values for any of these businesses was growth. I would 
slightly push back and say, because maybe in terms of the impression some people have, because when a lot of people think growth, they think, can I get new users into my application? I am willing to clarify, even without you finishing that statement, because I let me try and predict what you're about to say, which is... I would love to see it. Installs don't mean shit. Yeah. Unless they're making you money, unless... Is that what you... Unless they're staying. And that's been like, in both instances... Acorns, sick product. Honey, really cool product. Atlas Reality, super dope product. And that had to be there in all of these cases. Oh, absolutely. So it goes without saying, especially for your audience listening, that I think also something that set me apart is I didn't just say, I brought you clicks, I brought you installs, give me my check. I was like looking at the funnel. Like at Acorns, one of the biggest things was connecting your bank account. Like we cannot round up your spare change if you do not connect your bank account. So like me bringing an install doesn't mean anything if these people aren't connected to their bank account. And I observed early on that, man, for every install I would bring, only one of three would connect their bank account. Now, a normal growth marketer might say, hey, product team, figure this out. Or maybe they won't even say anything. And they're just hoping the product team looks at it. But I took it upon myself to look at that screen and say, based on the ads, my installs are saying, I can totally understand why they're going to drop off here. Because remember, the marketer knows all the visual steps the customer saw leading to this point. And I think this is the biggest thing that the product team, product teams rarely know what are the ads that are running, what are the creatives that are working. And I think what made me successful was understanding there's a holistic view to this, which is somebody saw this ad with this messaging, and then you're asking them to connect a bank account, which seems completely at odds. So when I came to the product team and I said, hey guys, I think we should add a screen before the Connect Bank screen that says, you want to round up your spare change and invest it. In order to do so, we need to you to link your bank account. And the design team at the time was like, adding another screen goes against every design principle. You want to make a funnel shorter, not longer. <laughs> and I was like, you have to add this context because these people are coming in with the intent to round up their spare change. And I asked them, I said, guys, how long from sign up to the bank screen has elapsed? And they said, four minutes. And I said, I don't even remember what I saw four minutes ago. Do you? And so what we did, Tommy, is we took the visual, the best performing ad that someone saw. Because remember, they clicked on that ad. And then we showed the ad again as like a ding, ding, ding. Remember this image? This is why you got here. This is why you're here on this screen. And in order to not abandon the last four minutes you spent, we need you to connect your bank. I mean, I'm not saying that's the words we said, but that's what we implied. And dude, the conversion rate on that bank screen doubled. That's huge. Yeah. So these are the kind of things that I think are so important is like growth is not just installs. Don't even get me started on the freaking marketers that say we can give you this many clicks. It's like, I don't give a crap about your clicks. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And what you guys did at Acorns was not only drive installs, but you recognize that the education of the consumers had to continue past that point. The end goal here was not to get them in the app. It was to get them to link their bank account. What I'm heading to at this point is I want to talk about Atlas Reality in two sentences. I'm hoping you can take a second just to tell our listeners about what Atlas Reality is. And the second piece that I'm hoping we can get at here is how do you tackle the same thing? Because you guys operate in a unique space. You provide a very unique product. How do you educate your customers in order to not just drive installs and to keep them engaged and keep them wanting to use it? So can you speak to that a little bit? Of course. So first I'll start about Atlas Reality. Atlas Reality is a 
mobile gaming company. But ultimately, our goal is to bring real world value on top of a virtual world. So our vision of the future, especially when it comes to location-based games, is bridging the gap between what you see on your screen and what you experience in the real world. I'm vehemently opposed to this notion of the Ready Player One future where you stick an IV in your arm, go into a tank, put on goggles and escape this world to live in another. I'm so happy to hear you say that. It's so depressing. You could look at your product and immediately think like meta style shit, but I agree with you. There was a dystopian novel written about how detrimental this could be to the world, which is Ready Player One. And I'm very happy to hear you say that. I think companies like Niantic and I think companies like us in Atlas Reality, the word metaverse is less sexy in 2023, but I think we have the right vision of what the metaverse should be, which is I want you to go out. I want you to see the world and I want you to enjoy things on the screen as you're out in the real world, safely, obviously. And I think Pokemon Go does something similar. But for us, what sets us apart is we've been pioneering virtual real estate on top of the real world. And what I mean by that is we've sectioned, we actually have two games. In 2018, we released a game called Atlas Empires, which is like building a virtual physical like medieval empire on top of the real world where you claim your house and that's your castle and you go out in the real world and build outposts. But what we did there was we built a system where you can, on a first come first serve basis, claim physical plots of land that had a one-to-one representation with a real place in the world. For example, my house. If I claim my house, you, Tommy, cannot come claim my house as well. And so we built the system. And then in 2021, as virtual real estate on Decentraland and Sandbox started getting really popular, frankly, due to speculation, we said, man, this is silly. And I even said this at the time, even as they're getting billion dollar valuations, I was like, this is really silly because you have to educate people about what the heck is Sandbox? What the heck is Decentraland? It's just this random thing on a random website. Whereas the real world is the real world. The world does not change. The physical world, as we know, it does not change. And so we already had this system to sell virtual real estate on a first-come, first-served basis. We're like, hey, if we're going to build a virtual real estate world, why not do it on top of the real world? And then, hey, let's start getting advertisers involved. Let's start getting the traditional like affiliate world involved and actually create a economic system that allows players to earn cash back with their involvement. So then it just turned into this amazing, like almost financially driven game. It's not going to make you rich. And we actually, at Atlas Earth, we made it a key to say, this game is for fun, but it will also earn you some pocket change. We're not trying to attract the speculators who think that they can put in five and turn into 10,000. Because I think that's, it attracts the most toxic of us all. (laughs) I think the better future is, I play this game, I travel to Miami, I buy land in Miami, I document my travels in Miami. And by the way, those parcels of land in Miami might generate me an extra dollar over the next year. But it's rooted in this local competition. Maybe I'll compete to be mayor of Miami. Shoot, maybe I'll fight to be governor of Florida. So there's just this, what we like to say is it's Pokemon Go meets Foursquare meets Monopoly. So Monopoly is like that land, the first come first serve land. Man, I went to Times Square in New York for a conference and I opened the game there. And as far as I could see, Times Square was bought up and it wasn't bought up by one person, man. It was bought up by thousands of people. And that was the cool thing for me as a founder, standing there going, 
you physically have to be somewhere to buy land in Atlas You cannot do it through a mobile uh, web browser or something. So it hits you when you go somewhere. You're like, not only was somebody standing here, all these people were standing here at some point buying land here. And that's to your point of Foursquare, which is cool, right? Because it almost tells a story about where I, at the same time as being a fun game, I can go in there and just be like, look at the story of where I've been for the last year, two years, 10 years, whatever the case may be. We want to lean into that. And we're just getting started on our journey with Atlas Earth. But I think that this location-based future has a lot of opportunity to be almost social in a way. Imagine dropping pictures in front of the Eiffel Tower for someone else to discover. I just think there's just so much you could do with the physical world, reminding everybody that we are all human and other humans were here. I just think that it's just a, such an open canvas of what you can do with it. It's not even just a game. And I think that's what I keep trying to tell people. It is a game, but the implications of where it could go is like limitless. Another world on top of our world. It, it's whatever you want it to be. At baseline, and you mentioned this at the beginning of what you, we had just discussed, which is Compared to Decentraland or Sandbox, where like to play ball, you probably have to have a MetaMask that you connect to one of these things. Like the barrier of entry is just, even for someone like me, right, who works in this space, like I had zero interest because I the barrier of entry is just too high. In your case, a big piece here is just lowering that barrier of entry by leveraging familiarity and familiarity in this sense means we're taking the world that we already know and putting it into this environment. Nevertheless, it's not easy always maybe for new people to understand it because, again, this stands alone. When you think about who are we similar to, the name that came up was Niantic. But there's not much beyond that. So talk to me about how do you, A, get people to understand what it is they're doing here, and B, how do you keep them engaged? Because if they find it too challenging or they don't find that it adds enough to their life, they're going to leave. How do we drive loyalty and retention here? Yeah. So look, that is an ongoing battle. If you ask any founder, you could always have better retention. For us, I think the key is people typically open the app when they're at home or when they're somewhere that's important to them. It's very rare that someone's downloading an app while traveling 60 miles an hour in a car or something. So the first thing is Atlas Earth is relatable because you relate to the physical land you're standing on. And because it's a location-based game, it's like, oh, that's my house. That's the outline of my house. Well, I should buy it. The second thing is we give the first parcel of land for free. So like it gives you the hook to try it without any sacrifice or commitment of your own. And then third of all, I think you highlighted is I couldn't tell you, Tommy, how many people offered us tens of millions of dollars to do cryptocurrency at the height of the crypto boom and said, oh, Atlas Earth, you should do a token in this, including our own players. And we stuck by our guns because crypto introduces a lot of complexity, but it also introduces, again, a different type of audience that is arguably much smaller. Our target is 100 million Americans. 100 million Americans should want to play Atlas Earth because of everything I just told you. It's a way to document your travels. It's a way to compete for local VIP status. So I would say for us, retention, and as it ties in with you guys, we use virtual currency instead of cryptocurrency. Candy Crush uses virtual currency. Pokemon Go uses virtual currency. Fortnite uses virtual currency. Minecraft, Roblox, you name it. So we're leaning into what people are already familiar with. And virtual currency is that thing. So if our virtual currency is Atlas Books. And of course, you can buy Atlas Books directly through Apple, Google Play, on our own website. But then we said, okay, well, we need to give people optionality. They got their first parcel free. Are they really going to spend five, 10, a hundred bucks buying more Atlas bucks? Some people do. Others will be willing to watch ads and grind away. 
And then there's options where we work with companies like Adjo or we have our own monetization technique where players can earn Atlas Flex when they go shopping in the real world or with Adjo in the near future, players can earn Atlas Flex playing other games or you get other benefits playing other games. And so these are the things that we think of as retention because for us, everyone wants to buy more land. It's inherent to our human nature. Even when we were tribal <laughs> or living in Mesopotamia, I feel like. That's, I think, very core to us. I think what's important to us now is giving more optionality for people to buy that land. And again, the land is bought through virtual currency. So I think if we just give more people more options, we just launched a way, by the way, we launched Atlas Travel. And Atlas Travel is a way, effectively an Expedia within our website. And people can book hotels, real hotels, Tommy. And when they do that, they actually earn Atlas Bucks for booking this hotel through our platform versus hotels.com or Expedia. And we've already had hand like handful of bookings. Like no one's ever done this. No one has ever booked hotels through a game platform until us. So that's an example of what I mean by optionality is let's just we're living on top of the real world. People are already going out spending money. They're already buying hotels. They're already filling up on gas. They're already playing other games. How do we give them the optionality to earn their way into more land? It's one of the coolest things about your application. And this is something you said earlier, which is like the sky's the limit in terms of where we can go because there is nothing that's foreign to this application in terms of adding feature, like adding an Expedia-ish product. Nothing weird about that because, again, you're already in the real world. This is a travel app. Everything makes sense there. Nothing weird about adding shopping experience because when someone's out and about, that's part of the angle of this product in general, right? Is get out of the house, go see things. The psychology does not feel foreign. Booking travel while crushing jelly beans and candy crush, that's probably a bit weird. <laughs> One thing that I think flows through all of this, and that is even like your past work experience at somewhere like Acorns or today, that I think is a really cool point. And I'm going to try to see if you agree with this or not regarding customer loyalty. You've said optionality many times. I think optionality and barrier of entry are the two things that you've nailed across your experience, which is how do I give people a lot of ways to get value out of a product? In the case of Acorns, it's Anything you buy, you can round up and we'll get you money on it. Honey, anything you buy, I can give you cash back on it online. Atlas Earth. Or try to find a coupon, yeah. Sorry, yeah, find a coupon. Yeah, Atlas Earth, it's you want to go to the gas station, I can give you a way to earn some money. You want to play a game, I got a way for you to entertain yourself. That's not weird for you. But also the barrier of entry here is so low, meaning I don't have to learn something completely new in my life in any of these cases, and especially in the case of Atlas Reality. This is... The world I live in today, these aren't new things. I don't have to learn a whole new skill set here. It's allowing me to get additional value out of what I already know, which for all consumers is going to be interesting to them, in my opinion. That's the future of loyalty, man. I keep trying to tell brands that I talk to, building your own app is so silly. No one wants to download yet another app. You got to meet people where they are because I don't want to download the Denny's, IHOP, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera app. I mean, no shade on any of those brands, but it's like, that's not where they're going to hang out. So now these brands are spending millions of dollars to not only build, but upkeep and maintain these experiences for incremental loyalty. That's probably just they're cannibalizing their own customers versus like, let's meet people where they're like in Atlas Earth or Niantic or in Pokemon Go because they're already there. And let's get those people to be more loyal because they're loyal to the game. The game is offering virtual currency and I will do a lot of things for the virtual currency if it's not 
crazy out of my way. And I think that's really the thesis of loyalty 3.0 is you've got those miles hackers, those people who fly a lot. What about the game hack, the people who game a lot? There's nothing there for them. And I think that's really where the vacuum we want to fill. It's amazing. And I think you guys have done a tremendous job. I can't wait to see what happens uh, in the future in terms of your growth. But thanks, man. Sami, I'm going to let you go. This has been an awesome conversation. It's so cool getting your perspective. I'd love to do it again sometime. And I really, really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. And we're excited to get Adjo in front of our customers soon. Appreciate that. For all our listeners, today's guest is Sami Khan, who is the CEO and co-founder at Atlas Reality. Sami, thanks so much. Thank you for tuning into the Mass Appeal podcast brought to you by Adjo. You can see all our great episodes by visiting Adjo. That's A-D-J-O-E slash blog. Or even better, subscribe and never miss an episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes so more people can learn these awesome app marketing insights. See you next time.